ahead and open up in your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 18. I promise we will finish it this week. For those of you that missed a couple weeks, I, I, I thought that I would finish this whole passage in one sermon. It's now taken three. It's the way it goes. But we will finish it today. I am a father of four children. And I've learned so much about God's love and God's relationship with me by fathering my own children. And, you know, I've learned the frustration of telling a toddler not to do something, only to have them stare you right in the eyes and set their jaw and do it anyway. And in that moment, I learned something. I learned that disobedience is not merely breaking a rule. It is breaking a relationship and owning or grabbing onto an authority that is greater than the authority in your life. Because in that moment, I I didn't as a father look at my children and say, I can't believe you just broke that rule that I just told you. It's, I can't believe you did that to me. Why would you ignore the fact that I love you, that I've tried to treat you well and to train you? And of course, the two-year-old's looking at me like, what are you talking about, dad? I just wanted a cookie, right? But there was this this fury within me of how could you deny me the authority that God has given me in your life? I've also learned that kids have an amazing ability to demand justice or rather to demand mercy for what they have done and demand swift justice for what their sibling does. That, that happens not in my house, usually, never, maybe on a daily basis. I've learned so much about my relationship with God. Because as I watched my children when they were toddlers disobey me, and I felt what I felt in my own heart, I thought, how much more so my Heavenly Father? That He's not looking at me and saying, well, you, you broke that rule and that's really too bad. He's looking at me and saying, don't you trust me? Don't you know that I love you? And when I think of my Heavenly Father's love and forgiveness and mercy for me and how quick I am to often ask judgment on someone else. I begin to sense a little bit of my Father's heart for me. And Today we're going to finish this chapter, and I'm glad in a way we've been able to spend some extra time in it because it is such an important chapter here in Matthew chapter 18. And I want to again go over the context because everything that happens in this passage is part of one time of teaching. Jesus teaching his disciples and anybody else that's listening. And what he has to say, all of it goes together. So if we miss part of it, we're going to miss the rest of it as well. The chapter, as I've thought more and more about it, is about the gospel on display. Jesus is beginning to shift and talk more and more about the church, not just his disciples right there that are following him at that moment, but those who would also come and what that needs to look like. What does this community of Christ followers look like? And the chapter started with, and the teaching is prompted by this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus kind of subtly says, that's the wrong question. And he brings a child and he says, you want to be great, you need to be like a child. My followers will be childlike. And again, I've said it many times, it's not, he's not talking about purity, although certainly we are to be pure. That's not the point here. The point here is to not seek to be important. 
but rather to seek to be the least of these. And then those children in the church, these little children, all of us as little children, not seeking to be important, how we treat one another becomes a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to welcome other children, to treat them well, to say we love you in the name of Jesus Christ. We are to be cautious in verses 6 to 9, not to cause someone else to struggle or to stumble. And we are to take care of sin in our own life and take it seriously. Verses 10 to 14, he talks about those who wander. God cares for those who are struggling, doubting, and wandering. And he goes after them. In verses 15 to 20, talks about what if someone is in sin and refuses to repent? refuses to admit that they're in sin. And it talks about someone should go and lovingly confront them, but if they're still unwilling to repent, they should take a few more with them. If they're still unwilling to repent, take it before the church. And if they're still unwilling to repent, then we are to consider them as if they are not a brother or sister in Christ. That their attitude and their action displays that they're not saved by Jesus Christ. doesn't mean we know whether or not they're saved. We're not condemning them to hell. I don't believe we have that authority. Only Christ does. But what we are saying is that by their attitude and actions, they are not showing evidence of being a follower of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean we hate them. doesn't necessarily mean we shun them. It does mean that we need to treat them as an outsider, and the hope is to win them back to Jesus Christ. Somebody sent me an email and said, what, what exactly does that look like in the church? I think it's a little different in every case, but at bare minimum, it would certainly mean removing them from membership in the church. They would no longer have authority over anything that goes on in the church. And it would be the elders going to that person and say, until you repent, you may not take communion. You may not take communion because communion is a testimony. I am a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ. And that would be a lie for someone who is living in unrepentant, confronted sin. It might mean removing that person from certain areas of fellowship, if that's where that sin has particularly infected, that we might have to say, look, you're hurting someone here. You can no longer come there until you repent of that. Again, that's where you get into situations that would might be more specific to that situation. The goal of all of this is always for the good of the person. To help them to understand that God loves them and wants to deal with that sin in their life. Leaving sin undealt with is not loving. And so the goal is to point them to the gospel, to repentance. It is for the good of the church. And it is also with the hope always of reconciliation. Repentance, forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. Now, we talk then, what if that person does repent? What if someone sins over and over again and comes and says, I'm so sorry, I'm struggling with this, I'm working on it, please forgive me, I confess that it is sin and I repent. And that's where we enter into verses 21 through 35, where Peter asks the question, How many times? And as we get to that question again, I want you to understand what Jesus is laying out here for us. Our relationships are a testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means how we treat one another matters. It must be taken seriously. We have a higher standard than just how we feel about other people. We have the truthfulness and the display of and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that we do. The church is to be a display 
of the gospel. Now, let's look at this question by Peter. This is where we spent the whole time last week looking at what this meant. I just want to set it before us briefly. Peter has this question of how many times should I forgive? How many times should I forgive? How many times should I count if someone has sinned against me and I'm going to forgive them? And we see in verses 21 to 22, then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And again, I said last week, this was Peter trying to be generous. The, the typical teaching of the day was that three was kind of enough. After three strikes, you don't get any more forgiveness. So Peter's going above and beyond here. But Jesus kind of, again, kind of like the first question, he blows this one out of the water. He says, I, uh, Jesus answered, verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations have 70 times seven. And again, the point is not to count. It's not to form a longer list of the number of times. It's to throw the list away and quit keeping count and to keep on forgiving someone who truly repents. Somebody sent a question to me about if someone keeps on sinning and keeps on repenting, at what point do we say that's not true repentance? And and my classic pastoral answer to that is that's not really the point of the passage. We'll deal with that in some other lesson. But no, it's, it's a good question. Repeated sins, repeated repentance, at some point does raise the question, are you truly repenting from your heart? And again, I think that would have to be situationally specific to deal with that person and to help them to understand what repentance looks like. But here, Jesus is dealing not with the heart of the repentant person or the sinful person. He's dealing with Peter's heart, the one who needs to forgive. So that's the focus here. How many times should we Forgive. And Jesus' answer is more than you can possibly imagine. Just keep on forgiving. And now he's going to tell a story. A parable, as Jesus likes to do, to drive the point home. And this parable is so powerful. And it's powerful on two levels. One, it explains what he has just said. Why are we to keep forgiving someone? Why? But on the other level that I want to end up with today, it helps us to get a bigger picture of just how much God has forgiven us. And I really do think the parable points to the truth that if we are struggling to forgive someone, it shows that we don't truly understand how much God has forgiven us. So let's look at the whole parable and get a sense of what's going on. Verses 23 through 25 here in Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The NIV has 10,000 bags of gold. Other translations leave it at 10,000 talents. It's kind of hard to translate units of money because of the differences in inflation, the differences in culture, differences in units of money. To break this down, a talent is about what it would take a typical day laborer, so somebody just working a typical nine-to-five job, it would take him about 20 years to earn a talent. 
20 years. This is an enormous sum of money. 20 years to earn one talent. And how many talents are we talking about here? 10,000. Now, I did a little bit of math, right? The uh, minimum wage, I think, recently was changed to 15. Is that about right? Is that 14.50? So we'll do 15. It makes the math easier. Okay? So, assuming that's a day laborer's wage, if you calculate this out, this is $6.2 billion that he owed. Now, granted, this is a fairly high-ranking servant. What he made might have been a little bit more. Maybe it wouldn't have taken him that long. But this would take a typical day laborer 200,000 years to repay this debt. If he never used one penny of the money to take care of himself or his family, and he set it all aside 200,000 years. This is an absurd debt. There is no way any servant of any king could ever possibly have had this great of a debt. It is an impossible amount. And the king's response is basically to demand payment. He knows that the servant cannot pay. And so what he's going to do is sell the servant and his entire family into slavery to pay off the debt that is unpayable. Now, we look at the servant's response in verses 26 and 27. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. Here's the begging for mercy. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. He begs for mercy. Be patient and I will pay it all back. That is a complete and total lie. There is no way he can pay back this debt. The disciples would have known it. Jesus knew it. They all knew it. The king in the story would have known there is no possible way for him to pay back the debt. No matter how long he worked, there was no way to do this. And yet, the king decides to show him mercy. And look at that phrase there. He canceled the debt. He didn't say, I'll give you more time. Well, sure, I'll give you another year to come up with, what did I say, $6.2 billion. Maybe maybe you can put some things together. Sell a couple of your old CDs and this will work out. Hop on eBay for a while. You can come up with this. That's not what he's saying. See, the king says, look, there is only one option here. Either I hold him to account to pay this debt or I cancel it. Not delay it, cancel it. As if it does not exist. He deletes the entirety of this debt. How is this going to affect the servant? How should it affect the servant? Well, we see this in the rest of the parable. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He demanded his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, this is about a hundred denarii or denarii. This is about 100 days of wages. Again, we have 200,000 years of wages or 100 days. That's the comparison here. Again, in today's amount, assuming $15 per hour, this would be about $12,000. Not a small amount to owe someone. 
If, if I was owed $12,000, I would be a little anxious to get paid back for sure. But here's the interesting thing. A debt is owed. The person asks for mercy. Do you see the similarities there? Peter would have gotten this right away. And there's an expectation. Well, of course, if he was just forgiven this monumental, uncountable debt, of course he's going to show mercy. He has to. And the fundamental difference between the two accounts of the the first servant and the king and the second servant and the first servant is the amount of debt that is owed. This is Jesus' point. Keep these in perspective. One debt is absolutely huge and unpayable and it was canceled. The other debt, by comparison, is small. And yet, what happens? What will the first servant do? He's been forgiven of so much. Surely, surely he's going to offer forgiveness to the second servant. Verses 30 and 31. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. He refuses to show even a small measure of the forgiveness that was shown to him. He does to the man what could have been done to him. He throws him in what's known as debtor's prison. You owe me money, you go to jail until you can pay me back my money. The logic of this is slightly flawed. Because you can't earn any money in jail. And really what it meant was that you will sit in jail until your family and your friends can come up with enough money to buy you out of jail and I will have you released. And of course, the greater the sum of money, the lower the hope that that would ever happen. This first servant is putting the second servant in a very difficult position, completely showing a lack of mercy and grace. Now, The fellow servants are aware of what's going on. And they know this is not right. And this is where I go back to the church being the gospel on display. There is this idea that what is happening here is wrong. This should not have been allowed to happen. And so they go to the king and they tell him what happened. And we pick it up in verse 32. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. I really like the way the NIV translated this because the word there is tortured. But that's the Greek word. And in fact, It's simply he turned him over to the torturers. The king would have guards in a prison. He would also have people whose sole job was to torture the enemies of the king. And this king says prison is no longer good enough for you. Being sold into slavery, that's that's not enough. You're going to be turned over to my torturers to be physically hurt until you can pay back this debt that you owe. 
And remember how much he owed? It was an unthinkable, unimaginable amount of money that would have taken him 200,000 lifetimes to even possibly earn that amount of money. And even if he could have done that, he wouldn't have been able to pay it to the king because he would have had to live. It is really an infinite amount of money. He owes an infinite debt and he will be turned over to a place where he will be infinitely punished for the infinite death. This is the picture of hell. This is a picture of someone who refuses to truly accept the forgiveness of the king. Jesus concludes this parable with very sobering words. Verse 25, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I'd like to think at this point, Jesus turned to Peter and said, any more questions? Do you still want to talk about counting how many times to forgive someone? You see, Peter's caught up in looking at him and this person that sinned against him. And how do we work this out? And Jesus says, no, no, you need to turn your attention away from that person and that sin and their repentance. You need to look at Jesus and how much he has forgiven of you. That is what puts everything in perspective. Jesus' answer is that we must keep on forgiving someone who sins against us and repents until we can possibly surpass the mercy and grace that God has shown us through his son, Jesus Christ. And of course, the unspoken statement is, you will never surpass that, ever. This parable, I believe, shows us that if we truly understand how much God has forgiven us, we will be motivated to forgive others. We have to be. This raises an important question, and I think it's at the heart of why we struggle with this. It's at the heart of why Peter asked this. And it is the question, do we truly understand how much God has forgiven us? And I think the answer is unfortunately so often no. And so I want to close what's kind of turned into a mini-sermon series within a larger sermon series of Matthew by looking at God's forgiveness of us. We looked last week at what forgiveness is because we looked at the statement that we are to forgive as God has forgiven us. And so we looked at how does that work? Do we just forgive anybody no matter what? And we looked at God forgives those who repent. That my understanding of Scripture is that repentance is required to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. Now, again, I I didn't say this earlier. All of this is assuming these are two Christians with the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center. And that's what's drawing them back and defining the whole relationship. There is a situation or there are situations where we may have a struggle with someone who's not a believer and certainly forgiveness can come into that. Hopefully they'll admit that they're wrong, but it's a completely different starting point. And it's a completely different ending point. There's not the same reconciliation that we have in the family of Jesus Christ. I talked about that last week, so I don't want to go into that too much further. But if we are going to learn to truly forgive others, we need to look intently at the forgiveness God has given us through Jesus Christ. I sat in adult Sunday school this morning. Mitch is teaching through uh, the book of Hebrews. 
And, and Paul's talking about basic things. And he says, you know, we need to move on from these, but you've kind of stopped. You've quit listening. You've quit learning. He's saying this to his readers, not to you guys. You guys are awesome. But he's saying, you know, we need to move on to the deeper things. And you're struggling with these things because you're not listening to the deeper truths about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And you're kind of giving up on Christ. If we lose sight of who Christ is and his forgiveness of us, we will absolutely be like this servant. His action shows that he does not truly understand the forgiveness that the king showed him. Our debt to our God is greater than we can possibly imagine. Greater than we can imagine. We just sang that song. It applies to God's love and his, his, his power, certainly, but it also applies to our sin and the debt we owe to our Father. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. This verse, like so many other verses in Scripture, confronts the rugged individualism of our day. I am my own person. I will do what I want, when I want, and nobody has the right to tell me otherwise. And the Bible comes along and says, no, there is a God. And you're not Him. You belong to Him. He created us. He has the right to define right and wrong. He has the right to say how things should go. And then Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, I think one of the saddest passages in Scripture For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. This is summing up the entirety of human history after the fall of Adam and Eve. Saying we knew who God was. Adam and Eve knew God. They stood there in his presence in the Garden of Eden. They had everything they could possibly need or want, including a perfect relationship with each other and a perfect relationship with their creator. And like the toddler, they looked at him and said, we want to do it different. See, Adam and Eve didn't just break a rule. They undermined the authority and the position of God. And they said, we know better than you. That's what sin is, friends. And the sooner we can come to understand that as as Christians, we'll have a better understanding of taking sin seriously. Sin is not just, God said this, but oops, I did this. Sin is, I know better than the Lord God Almighty. He says not to do this, but I think it's okay. That's why it's so offensive. And here in this passage, they They decide, rather than serving the God that created all things, we're going to come up with our own things that are important, our own things to take our time and our worship and our honor and our glory and our worship. I already said worship. But he's going to take those things. And they said they're going to worship those things that were created by God. Why would you worship something created by God rather than just worshiping the God that created them? They're settling for lesser things. All sin is ultimately rebellion against God. The God who created us, who gave us life, who every moment of every day sustains our life. Sin is a rebellion against that God. And so we come to Romans 
chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And people all the time want to say, well, that's just, that's just unfair. I mean, come on, that's just a cruel God to say that he demands death for sin. That is clear evidence we don't understand just how awful sin is. We turned our back on the Creator who created us and gave us life and sustains our life and said, we don't want you, we don't want you what you have to offer, we're going to find our own happiness over here. And then we go, wait a minute, I'm now dying? How fair is that? That's like me creating, or maybe my wife, cooking a, a wonderful meal for my kids, and they say, I don't want to eat it. I'm hungry, it's so unfair that you don't feed me. I just did. If you decided not to accept it, it's not on God's fault that we experience death. Whose fault is it? It's ours. All sin is rebellion against the God who created us, loves us, and sustains our life. But look at the second part of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we go back to the parable and the immeasurable forgiveness in the first account of the king. This is it right here. Jesus is not actually explaining how that forgiveness takes place. That's not the point of the the parable here. But we know from the rest of Scripture, and I want to bring this in here, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how the debt is forgiven. And that's how great the debt is. It costs the Son of God his life. It is an eternal, an immeasurable, uncountable debt. You know, in the parable, the king decides to just cancel the debt. But God is righteous. He is just. Sin is evil. It must be punished. People talk about, well, salvation is free. It's free to us, but let's be careful. It's not actually free. The cost of salvation was as great as the penalty of our sin. See, the cost of salvation is death. Someone had to die. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is, like the first servant, we were hopeless, helpless, completely overcome by what we owed to our God, the penalty for our sins. And the king, God in this case, doesn't come to us and say, well, you know, if you just fix yourself up a little bit, I'll meet you halfway. You pay some of it back, I'll match you dollar for dollar and we'll work this out. A lot of us have that idea of our relationship with God. Well, I'll just try to be as good as I can and what I can't do, God will do the rest. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way, shape or form. The gospel is you are hopeless, helplessly lost, dead in your sins. And in that moment of your helplessness, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for people who owed him so much. God doesn't ask us to pay anything because there's nothing we could pay that would make a bit of difference. Jesus Christ paid it all, all of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love looking at this verse on Good Friday. This is what I call the great exchange. 
God took our sin and put it on His Son. He took our punishment and our debt that we had to pay because we are rebels against who He is. And He put all of that punishment on His Son and Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, died in our place. That's the cost of our forgiveness. But God didn't stop there. He takes the perfect righteousness of God and he says, not only were you worthy of dying as a sinner, I put that on my son, but now I'm going to take the perfect righteousness of my son and I'm going to count that toward you. And that's how God sees you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. He sees you as having your sin paid for and as being perfectly righteous through his son, Jesus Christ. Our forgiveness has an immeasurable cost. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Free to us, absolutely. But very costly to God. The king did what was necessary to settle the debt that we owed to him. So when we come to this passage, this is what we're looking at. This is the heart of the gospel in Matthew 18. We have been forgiven of so much by God through Jesus. And so what Jesus is challenging Peter with and us as we read this is a very simple question. Do we truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? You say, wait a minute, this is about so-and-so did this to me. No, no, stop there. Do you truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? But they did this, and and I know they've forgiven, or they're repenting, and they say they're sorry, but I, I just can't. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, quit looking here on a human level, and look here at what your God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? The church is to be the gospel on display in everything, in our teaching, in our worship, in our fellowship, in the way we treat those outside the church, in the way we interact with each other. In everything we do, we display the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes the church displays the gospel in magnificent, powerful ways. Sometimes we put on a very poor display. Praise God, we have a God who shows great mercy and grace. But he comes back to us in passages like these and says, look, take this serious. People need to hear the gospel and see the gospel on display in the church. The core of the gospel is about God's great forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. Which means, whether or not we're willing to forgive someone, a brother or sister who has sinned against us is a gospel-believing issue. Now, as we close out this important chapter on the gospel and and relationships in the church, my prayer for us as Orchard Community Church, as always, is that we would take seriously that everything we do is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means so often we need to let go of lesser things in order to hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things that we might disagree on, might have differences of opinion, and that's okay. But we say, you know what? That's not important. I'm going to hold up and display the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I mentioned last week a book that I've used in studying for the past couple weeks. It's a book called Unpacking Forgiveness by a man named Chris Bronze. I'd never heard of him before. Phenomenal book. Highly recommend it. In this book, he gives examples of absolutely horrific things. I was looking through it for things that I could use as illustrations of this, and honestly, pretty much all of them I didn't feel comfortable sharing because they are just truly awful. Horrible cases of abuse. And yet, in several of these stories, not every one of them, but several of them, there has been a chance for the person who did the abuse to go to the person who was abused and say, I was so wrong. And the person forgave them. And there was a restoration. Not that the abuse never happened, didn't make any of it okay. That's not the point of forgiveness. Forgiveness actually says, no, that was truly horrible what you did. But I forgive you. And as I read these things, and it's easy to dismiss them as kind of news stories and think, well, that's sure, that's out there. That never really happens. They're, they're great stories from time to time. But to stop and think, but it does happen. Because that's what God did to us. That's what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. If you're here today and you're struggling to forgive someone, you're struggling to forgive someone who is willing to repent, to say what I did was wrong. And you're saying, I I just don't know. I don't think I can forgive you. It was too hard. Let me just encourage you, but also challenge you. Quit just looking at what they did. Go deep into the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go deep into thinking about how much has God forgiven me of. And then ask yourself, if I serve a king that has done so much for me, can I not show forgiveness to my brother or sister in Christ? We have an absolute extreme forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That should change everything about who we are, what we do, and how we treat other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. When we were yet sinners, stuck in sin, lost in sin, living in rebellion against you, completely helpless and hopeless, you sent your Son to die for us. And you didn't just take a little bit of our sin and ask us to work on the rest. And you didn't just give us a new list of rules to try to follow to fix ourselves up. You took the penalty and the payment that we owed to you for all of our sin. And you put it on your son, Jesus Christ. You canceled our debt by fulfilling that debt through Jesus' death on the cross. And he conquered our debt by rising from the grave and promising eternal life to all who believe. That is our new identity in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, as Christians who take the gospel seriously, that we would live that out, that we would stop in all of these interactions, instead of following what's normal and natural to us or the ways of this world, that we would stop and say, how do I believe in, trust in, and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Father, I lift up before you today anyone who's here or who's listening 
who has never received your son as their savior. May they see in this story two incredible, important truths. The debt they owe to you is unimaginable and unpayable in their sin. There is nothing they can do. And the forgiveness that you offer to them is even greater. That you can set them free by your son's death and resurrection, paying the price of their sin, forgiving them, restoring them to a right relationship with you, their creator, and they can live in this new freedom and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything in this world. And it gives us a hope beyond anything we could possibly find on our own. Teach us, Father, to be people who not only know extreme forgiveness, but offer that to others as well. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.